Hello, everyone, and welcome to this live episode of To the Moon, Allison, where we're talking about the top and trending books in science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy, and romance. I'm your host, Allison Martine Hubbard, author of works of contemporary romance and speculative fiction. I'm so excited to be joined today, first show of 2022, by author of speculative and science fiction and comic book artist, just kidding, author, Benjamin Percy, and we're here to talk about his book, the Unfamiliar Garden, which is the second book in the Comet Cycle. Benjamin, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. And you may need to adjust your levels, everyone, because we were joking before we started that Benjamin has the lowest voice that we've ever had on any of the shows I've ever hosted. And I feel like everything's kind of rumbling here and I like it, but you might need to adjust because you're used to listening to me and I know I'm a chipmunk. So I apologize if you've got like me squeaking in your ear and then Benjamin's bringing in the bass. So... Benjamin, thank you for joining us. And could you tell us a little bit about this book that came out last week? You bet. So The Comet Cycle is a series of novels that I'm writing. And the trigger event for all of them is an age-old sci-fi concept. A comet comes streaking through the solar system. Our planet spins through the debris field. And new elements are introduced to the world that interrupt the laws of physics, biology, geology that upend the geopolitical theater that create chaos in the weapons sector and the energy sector and that in a very marvelly kind of way creates a new dawn of heroes and villains very much so the first book uh takes place in northern minnesota and concerns omnimetal which has a kind of vibranium quality to it metal is Metal is, yeah, metal is, and, and and I do need a shirt that says that. That's that's a phrase that's repeated a lot through the first book, and it shows up in the second book. And I'm sure if I wore that, people would think she's into heavy metal, and I'd be going, no, not even. <laughs> just into the ninth metal. Just in the ninth metal, yes. And and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that book later. But just like quickly, it's a kind of a boomtown book, all about this noon metal that that crashes down in these meteors in northern Minnesota and creates kind of a contemporary deadwood. But the second book, the book that just came out, The Unfamiliar Garden, takes place in the Pacific Northwest and has to do with alien plant growth. Um, It is a novel that is, yes, about this bewildering sci-fi concept. Uh, But at its heart, it's a family story. And there are two central characters. Um, one of them is a detective and she is chasing, uh, clues involving a series of ritualistic murders taking place in Seattle. And her husband, ex-husband is the other character. And he is a university professor at the university of Washington, a mycologist specializes in fungus in other words. And he is investigating Uh, new fungal growth and it turns out that their work will draw them back together again professionally emotionally uh in part because those two things are aligned and also in part because their daughter who vanishes in the opening of the story on the night that the sky falls and and that that vanishing results in an already rocky marriage experiencing irrevocable cleavage they break apart we fast forward five years later and find them uh you know living in their own corners of of the pnw and 
you know, immersing themselves in their work. But but this, you know, these ritualistic murders, this this new fungal growth, like they're brought together again by that, but also the possibility that their daughter might still be alive. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 indeed. And it's so funny because the first book that it started to remind me of, and it isn't a book, but I'm sure you've seen the movie Evolution. Evolution. Did you see the movie Evolution years no, back? No. David Duchovny? No? Maybe okay. I recognize the okay. cover. That Very silly. Face? Yeah, ri- ridiculous, ridiculous tongue-in-cheek movie. But the premise is actually very serious, very similar, where you've got something that hits the ground, and then there's rapid evolution of things, and they're trying to take it out. And this is a spoiler for anyone who sees the movie, but it came out like 20 years ago, so I think I'm okay. They defeat the bad alien stuff with head and shoulders, because it has selenium in it which is, I guess, something that the fungus doesn't like, but it's this fungus that goes through this evolution from little things to things that look like dogs, but then are eating people. And the next thing you know, they're like dinosaurs and it just goes down here fat, hill fast, but it had Orlando Jones and David Duchovny and was just ridiculous. But this is like the serious version. So it's, it's like if this was being taken seriously, but there were scenes in like the lab and I'm going, Ooh, this is if it was done seriously and not them being ridiculous and playing for the get it before it goes up the guy's butt kind of jokes. Cause those, those are not in here. Yeah. But- you know, the, <laughs> like I said, it's an age old sci-fi concept yes. and, and the comet is the inciting incident for all of these stories. There's a mm-hmm. fire in the sky and, and comets have long been associated with meteorological and human disaster, you know, tsunamis, earthquakes, droughts in the annals of history have been attributed to comets. And uh, 44 BC, when Caesar was assassinated, his soul was said to come up with a comet. On that the was a new one on the head, or when the Black Death broke out in 684 AD. You know they they believe that Halley's comet was to blame. Um, and so I'm I'm drawing upon that. I'm drawing upon some of my favorite narratives. You know everything from John Carpenter's The Thing, H.P. Lovecraft's. Color Out of Space, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, Hammer of God, George R. R. Martin, Clash of Kings, I could go on, but like comets are oftentimes super used as a supernatural device, as an instigator of change. Yeah, I was going to say that the Hammer of God and then followed by Anvil of the Stars, those two. But fortunately, when I, I do like the fact that this features a comet that doesn't destroy everything. So instead of it just being like I, on my Goodreads shelves, I have one that's Apocalyptica. But this isn't really apocalyptic because the world's changing. It's not ending. And so it gives you a lot more to work with rather than a lot of the tropes where you just have, well, most of humanity's gone. Let's go look for canned goods. And I love those stories too, but we sometimes have had enough of those. So I liked getting to see, okay, what's new and what's next? And how is the world changing because of this rather than how is the world pretty much dead? Yeah, you know, it's it's not an apocalyptic story at all. It's about a new world within this world. And in part that came from, you know, a few years ago, I'm sure other people felt the same. Uh, I, I I just was feeling a bit numb, uh, you know, and, and part of that had to do with uh, just what was happening in the world. But it also had to do with the way in which I was gobbling up information. I felt like I was uh, glutted on oh. news. Um, and, and there's something about the way in which we consume, you know, news right now where, if something happens in Rio, Tokyo, London, Chicago, wherever, I can know about it within seconds. And I can get online and I can watch firsthand video or hear witness testimony or 
you know, get the opinions of so-called experts, you know, who are on the ground or, or whatever else. And, and, and it creates like this flood, uh, in your brain. And, and, and I wanted, I felt like I had lost my capacity for awe. Oh, yeah. A little dramatic, but, but it's true. I felt like I had lost my sense of wonder. And in part, I set off to write this book or the series of books to create a sense of wonder for myself again, because so much about wonder, that feeling is about not knowing. Yes. And so the not knowing, you know, if you consider that here are all these new elements that have been introduced to our world so that overnight, you know, the laws have changed. Uh, and, and that for me is such a fun sandbox to play in. Well, and like you mentioned, it's well, well, how it, how it changed so many different things. And it's something you, you emphasize more in the first book in ninth metal that it changed the economy in a certain town, like a town that goes from being on the, on the verge of being a ghost town and everybody's moving out to this is, this is the new gold rush. This is a boom town because this is where ninth metal is. And like I said, metal is, it becomes this religion to people and it's this odd mix. And I, I've never seen something presented this way where it's this mix of almost a drug cult and a religion. Um, Cause we've seen a lot of apocalyptic cults before, but not one that tied in specifically something that's tied to it. Not just, Oh, well, a spaceship is coming to take us away, but no, no, the spaceship has been here or the, the space connection has been here and now we're consuming it and becoming one with it in this very unusual way. Yeah. You know, whenever, whenever you encounter a piece of speculative fiction, whether it's fantasy or sci-fi or horror, it's oftentimes is channeling cultural unease, societal unease in some way. You know, you look at Godzilla and it's all about post-atomic anxieties. Mm -hmm. or Invasion of the Body Snatchers is about the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Or look at the way Romero reinvented the metaphor for the zombie in every era in which he produced those films. Um, so when I am writing the series, and you know, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm taking like some age-old symbol of collective fear with the with the comet and and i'm using it to sort of magnify anxieties that we face right now whether that's in the case of the ninth metal rapacious energy consumption uh and the destructive synergy of business and politics mm -hmm. or intrusion of from foreigners uh that threaten the national identity of some or the reckless development of technology that outpaces our understanding of the world, man-made God that will destroy us. I mean, all of these things are, are, are anxieties we face right now. And I'm coming at them from different angles with the ninth metal. In the case of the unfamiliar garden, um, you know, that takes a, uh, I take a different angle and it becomes very much about an invisible enemy that is riding the air all around us. Uh, you know, the spores, the fungal spores, they're a contagion. And that's something that we are extremely anxious about right now. I think yours is the first <laughs> book that has that I've read that has outright used the word COVID. And you use it unapologetically because there are no there are no dates in this, as far as I could tell. But it's in a post-COVID world. And it's in a place where, because one of the characters, Nora, who's the police officer, she is like, I'm in a hermetically sealed house. Everything here is clear. I am always wearing this and she's getting looks, but she's like, nope, this is, this is how I'm choosing to live to make sure that that's not something that's getting in me. And it later becomes something that's important that she's done because 
she's protected in a way from these spores that no one even knows to be aware of to protect themselves from yeah. because you can't see them. They're, they're not like floating around like this big. Yeah, COVID isn't central to the book, but yeah. I thought it was important to at least acknowledge it glancingly uh, to, to give it, you know, some real world authenticity, the, the speculative hoo-ha of it all. Um, and that goes for the slippery science of this novel. You know, with every book that I write, I spend a lot of time talking to researchers. Um, you know, in the case of my novel, Red Moon, it's a werewolf novel, but I filled up so many yellow legal tablets with notes when I interviewed scientists at the USDA lab, scientists at Iowa State University, trying to come up with some version that was biological version of you know, the supernatural myth, something that was analogous. Rather so, than just like, oh, it's a curse, it's magic, let's let's not yeah. go there. Instead it comes out of, you know, the, the the wolf population in the same way that chronic wasting disease or mad cow disease rises out of an animal population. Right, with like the free are infected with it. Yeah. So so anyways, in in this book, you know, I spent a lot of time speaking with biology professors such as Dan Hernandez at Carleton College. Uh, I spent some time taking a fungal class at the Wolf Ridge Environmental Center up on the North Shore. Um, and as a result of that, I hope that, you know, there is like a foundation of truth that helps you swallow down uh, things that are a little bit more technicolor. Sir, I just laughed because I wanted to know how many you actually ate. <laughs> it's research. I, I mean, I, I'm always doing shrooms. <laughs> Where do you think I get all my good ideas? Yeah, yeah. Like this just was an inspiration. Metal is and mushrooms mm, are. No, I just I thought that was amazing because there are a lot of times you read things where they reference the science and it's just kind of glancing, but you spend a lot of time there and I'm sitting there going, I hope there won't be a quiz later about the different kinds of like I can't even pronounce some of these words that are talking about the different kinds of fungus because even though I really enjoy eating them, I don't know that much about them. I'm not well, this I'm will not hopefully a... <laughs> give you a you know a little bit of nonfiction in your reading diet. And like most people, for instance, think that blue whales are the largest organism on Earth, and they're mm -hmm. wrong. Uh, it's a fungus. It's a pathogenic fungus down there, and it's eating trees. Two thousand acres in eastern Oregon in the Blue Mountains, and it's estimated to be over eight thousand years old. The Pacific Northwest is this garden, and um, you know botanists have tried to find the edge of the fungus, but they can't. There is no edge because it's ever expanding. And on the surface, there's these yellow-capped mushrooms that pop up beneath the soil. These rhizomorphs are fingering their way outward. At first, it's filaments, and they're weaving tightly and tightly together to form a mat. And I have stood over this beast. You know, I've seen these yellow mushrooms, and I've seen beyond these mushrooms the conifer forest that has been destroyed by it because they it excretes these uh, digestive enzymes. And, and it, it creates skeletons out of all these trees. So, so they're just these hollow things full of beetles. That, that was one of my real world inspirations right there. I love it. Well, and I think that, that when you have that grounding of the science, it just makes it even more terrifying. So I don't know. I mean, I would not call this a horror novel, but at the same point, you do have a ritualistic murders going on. So I guess it probably isn't for someone who has a really weak stomach who doesn't want to read about, you know, people getting interesting things carved into their bodies, because that's probably not for everybody. I enjoy it, but I have issues. What's wrong with you? No, it's a, yeah, it's it's an intense novel. I wouldn't say it's a horror novel. It's a sci-fi no. thriller, but there are moments of, of terror in it. 
Um, and you know, since I write a lot of horror, uh, everything from like a comic series Year Zero or novels like Red Moon or The Darknet, um, people are often asking me like, "What scares me?" And and I have different sort of responses. Like I have my jokey responses, which, which are, are, "I'm scared of clowns and sharks and dentists and shark clowns and and shark clown dentists." Um, <laughs> I actually am scared of dentists, but you know when. When we get sincere, when I talk about what really scares me, there's only one thing, and that's something happening to my kids. Yeah. Um, and I think that stories infect or inflict readers most when there's something personal that the author's bringing to the page, something raw. And, you know, it's talking about inspirations here. And in this case, like, when the, when the daughter vanishes, you know, that's a petrifying moment. And that's that's one of the things that carries you throughout the book is wondering what happened to her, and just the debilitating, uh, what a debilitating experience that is on the parents. And that's true to some degree in that you know my kids are twelve and fifteen right now, but when they were young, they had undeveloped airways, and every winter was a nightmare yeah. uh, because they would get severe croup and they couldn't breathe. Did it's you have weird. to do the respirator things with them? Yeah, and then, yeah we, we did that with my youngest when when he was littler because their 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 lungs just can't do anything. So it's like here, yeah. have some steroids till your lungs catch up. Right, we were in the ER, we were in the yeah. ICU over and over again. One of the worst memories of my life is watching my son uh, in the middle of a blizzard in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we lived at the time. He was you know put onto a gurney and popped into an ambulance, and I had to follow in his lips were blue his mouth you know his face was turning blue and, and he couldn't breathe and so i had to follow this ambulance through this snowstorm not knowing what was happening in that ambulance it's one of the like, you know most horrible memories of my life and, and so i'm channeling this very real fear onto the page and i think that hopefully hopefully that's where some of the horror comes from it feels I, I i completely agree because i am a parent and there was nothing scarier in the book than that earliest scene where the father comes back and the daughter is nowhere to be found. And it's right in the beginning. So it's not a spoiler. We've already talked about it, but the idea that there's just nothing, there's, there's no sign of what happened to her and everything from that point falls apart for both him and his then future ex-wife, however you want to put that. But there's a child involved in the first book as well. Who's also in peril. So I feel like you're channeling those dad vibes very strongly and it's, it's a different relationship because it's it's not a main character's child going through this, and it's a little bit of an older child. But there's a, there's a child in Ninth Metal that pulls at the heartstrings too. Yeah, yeah, he's you know there's there's sort of an age old age old adage which is like if you want to create suspense in the reader, put a child in danger. <laughs> it works. That that or kill a dog or hurt a dog. People are like, no, not the puppy. Don't kill the dog. No, don't never never kill the dog unless you're just doing John Wick stuff. And it's it's been done. You don't want to do that. Uh, but I did I did talk to you a little bit before we got going about how these books are very interesting because so it's the comet cycle and I don't I won't even necessarily call it a trilogy because in many ways that kind of implies a read them in this order one two three and I did read Ninth Metal first because I didn't know that these would be essentially standalone in a shared universe. So do you want to speak a little bit to that and why you decided to to take it that way? Yeah, I you know for a few different reasons, but one of them is attrition. Um, these books are all standalone novels. You can read book two before you read book one, book three before you read book two. Uh, and if you look at most series, they suffer from attrition. The readers drop off book to book to book. 
so I wanted to fight against that. And I, you know, also was thinking about comics. Um, comics sort of taught me that lesson. You're always told if you're writing for Marvel and DC, and I write Wolverine and X-Force and Ghost Rider for Marvel right now. And I've written for either Marvel or DC since 2014. But you're always told, like, every comic is somebody's first. That's so true. And and they sometimes they do become these unapproachable things. I know I watch some different things like comics are weird and and being able to even understand what's going on. I, I remember back when I was in high school and I was first getting a taste of some of these, I ended up buying kind of a primer to X-Men because I was so very confused. And I looked at this one page going, well, I'm never going to understand because once you get into days of future past and then you've got people time traveling, you're going, well, no, I'm never going to understand this. So if you don't have something that's easy access, easy entry point, you're not going to get new readers. And you're only going to have people who are like, well, if you haven't read it for the last 50 years, you won't really understand the storyline. And yeah. obviously with the success of things like the MCU, there are people who are still just coming in now and want to be, they want to have a new love of a, of a comic. And they're not going to do that if they're like, I have no idea who these people are or the relationships. Yeah, the mythology can come up, it can become far too dense. Um, but, you know, comics are kind of my definitive reading experience when it comes to my childhood. I don't remember what my first novel is that I read. It might have been like a Ramona Quimby novel. It, <laughs> it probably was. It might, it might have been The Hobbit. It might have been The House with the Clock in Its Walls. It, you know, third grade era. Uh, but I remember every comic I read. And that's because I would read them over and over and over again until they fell apart in my hands. And uh, Don't I, you wish you still had those now? Because if they if they stayed in place, they'd be worth a lot. But they fell apart. You have, but they're trashed. I know. <laughs> and, and one of the things I loved about comics was that they were part of a shared universe. Right, what happened in uh, Batman carried over to Wonder Woman, carried over to Green Lantern, carried over to Superman. They're all, you know, but they were separate titles. You could right. just stick to your lane, or you could open it up and appreciate to a greater degree this richer experience. Now, I've written, as I said, for DC or Marvel since 2014, and it's a joy to do so. But those characters don't belong to me. You know, I'm a custodian of them. And so in writing this, Comet Cycle, which could be three books, but it could be six books. It could be 16 books. They can just, I can just keep going. The idea behind it was to create my own shared universe, uh, which, you know, I came to recognize an equivalency in, in literature as well. Uh, you know, whether it's more speculative work like The Expanse or whether it's, uh, you know, something like the way, you know, life after life, Kate Atkinson, she follows that up with a God in ruins or, or Lois Lowry, uh, has the giver and messenger and blue gathering blue and such like, like those are sort of like cousins. As yeah. I was going to say, I, when I first read them, I, I thought they were going to build into each other more and I'm going, I don't see how these connect yet other than they're in the same world. They're, they're a family. Yeah. And so. I wanted to do a little bit of that, like build a family, build a shared universe, have my own sandbox, my own 40 acres, and then, you know, work towards a point where I can have an Avengers Assemble moment. Um, now, there are characters who appear in all three of these first books. Yes. And there are cross-references, but you absolutely do not need to read all of them. 
Well, and I was going to say Stephen King's known for doing that as well. And the, the, the game of, oh, does this have a Dark Tower reference? Because the Dark Tower being kind of the central point and then all these other books, well, yeah. which ones factor in and which ones don't? And then the crossovers with Peter Straub. So I, I adore those, but I also do love the fact that these can be read standalone. So you can come in at any point and be able to appreciate, oh, we're referencing what happened in the first one. So it's that extra bit of nugget and of enjoyment for those who did read it in that order. But it's not like, oh, well, I don't really understand who this character is because you're already giving me who that character is enough to understand in this term. Okay, here's who this guy is. And he is not a good guy based on what he just did. And oh, no, no spoilers, but it goes, it goes badly quickly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, again, I don't know how long that I'll write this, whether it'll be a decade in the making, whether it'll be 20 years in the making, whether I, you know, have dozens of volumes or not. I don't, I don't know, but I wanted there to be uh, that expansive acreage available to me Mm -hmm. telling not just these singular stories, but a global story. Well, and you you mentioned, when you mentioned the expanse, but I, I can't imagine coming in book, you know, coming into Tiamat's wrath and having a clue what's going on. If you hadn't started at the beginning, because they did kind of start small and, and expand. Sorry, can't help it. And create this larger global universe. And I, I've I've been reading the books and the novellas and then started watching the show when it came on. And if people are finding it through the show and telling people, okay, you need to go read them. And then you need to go get go get the novellas. You're not allowed to skip the novellas. So I, are you going to do things like novellas and smaller books with this as well? Or do you think yeah, you yeah. Kind of see these are not huge, which I, I did like. These were These were quick reads. Um, and I think sometimes science fiction gets this, this kind of bad rap of everything is a, a chonky tome that's going to take you three years to get through. These are crisp. I have no better way to put it, but your prose is crisp and it's very precise. And other than the actual scientific terms, which you can't really help being the words they are, it, it's not prose that ends up drowning you in descriptions. It's, it's crisp. I don't know if it's because of your comic background that you're like, I only had a bubble this big, so I've got to make every word count. Or if that's just your preference and style, but I, it's I love it. Crisp poetry. Uh, the, <laughs> you know, part of my pitch for the comet cycle was not just the story itself, but the rollout. And from a marketing perspective, again, looking at comics, I find it to be exclusionary for a novel to come out and be 37 bucks as a hard buck. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to take that risk. Uh, with comics, they come out first as floppies that are two ninety nine. That's an ebook. And and then later on, they become a trade paperback where five mm-hmm. issues are collected. Later on, they become a hardback. Later on, they become a deluxe omnibus. And each one has more and more cool stuff usually in it. Um, and costs more, right? So it builds cheap word of mouth. That's what I demanded with this is like, we are going to roll these out as paperbacks uh, and then go later to hardback. So these come out in quick succession every six months or so, mm-hmm. and they're paperbacks. And later on, there'll be an omnibus hardcover edition that has, to reference, you know, come back to your original question, extra short stories, novellas, illustrations in it. Well, I, I love that. And I especially just like the idea that you can you can get this as like your starter and go, okay, do I like this writing style? Is this a world I want to spend more time in rather than I invested in a book this big and, oh, this is not for me. <laughs> like, ooh, 
I don't like that. And I know that's why a lot of authors will do stuff like Kindle Unlimited, but that's a service that not everyone has. So it's like on one hand, yes, that's a, a way people can do easy entry. But on the other hand, it it still only applies to people who have that specific subscription service, which not everyone has. I mean, I love a big novel. I've written <laughs> I've written big novels. Which uh, is your biggest? Your fattest? Uh, Red Moon. Red Moon's the biggest book. That's how many words? Fifty, maybe. I don't know how many words that is. Six fifty pages. pages deep. So, but but in this this day and age, a lot of people, you know, they feel distracted. Understandably. Um, so I guess one of the things that's happening here is I'm telling smaller stories that hmm. add to a larger story. But there is a larger novel, a book that will come out that will be 700 pages long. But these, <laughs> these novels, you know, they're, they're, you know, digestible singular stories that are part don't of say digestible after, after this. No, <laughs> that's making me nervous. Like the books are digestible, not, not people. Please, but no, I I, I thought that the, well. you, you did what? I said the books are edible as well. Just put oh, some ketchup. Maybe I I really appreciated that it was such a quick read because I felt like you were keeping the tension really high throughout too. And even though there were multiple things going on in the book with mixed missing children and serial killing and ritualistic killing and discovering these these new forms of life and what does that mean for the world and geopolitics it still didn't feel at all padded. And uh, to be able to get all that in and not feel padded is pretty remarkable, I would say. Just I think that writing comics has made me a more efficient novelist. Uh, you know, you know, when you're writing comics, that you're supposed to be doing three things. You're supposed to be building character. You're supposed to be pushing the plot forward. You're supposed to be, uh, you know, enriching the theme. You know this when you're writing novels as well, but novels could be 700 pages. A comic is only 20 pages. It's not 18, it's not 24, it's 20. And because you are limited uh, in, in the amount of real estate, you are constantly stacking things on top of each other. That's why in a comic, if Batman's fighting some villain alongside Robin, there'll be a large conversation going on as they pow and smack and clack, you know, they'll be talking about something like really significant, emotionally uh, resonant, uh, while the chaos ensues. So the plot's moving forward, characterization's moving forward, themes moving forward. With novels, like novels are known as baggy monsters. I think that's like, <laughs> Did you say baggy monsters? Baggy monsters. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that. How is it a baggy monster? Because books, you know, they just they they go on digressive tracks and. You know, authors get uh, fan, you know, fascinated by their own use of language, and they'll spend like a page talking about the way the sun's setting over the mountains, or or whatever. You know, they don't have that crystalline quality that you oftentimes find in short stories um, uh, or in comics. So, in writing in one medium, and this is often the case because I write across many different mediums, I find that I harvest sort of a story storytelling arsenal that then informs my other work. Yeah, it strengthens you all across the board. And it's funny because several authors and I were talking about doing short stories and I personally, I'm terrible at them. I enjoy reading them and I've tried writing them. It's just not something I'm very good at. And I feel like I would need to have a, a crash course and how about you go write for a comic for a while and figure out how to get this really down and compact. And then maybe you can write a decent short story. I'm not there yet and that's okay. No, comics are 20 pages, five to seven scenes. 
There's an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. The B plot of one issue becomes the A plot of the next. C plot becomes the B plot. There's, you know, usually a splash page, single image page in the first five pages. There's usually a splash page as the final page. You know, there's there's a, not a formula, but there's there's some guidelines. I was going to say, yeah. no, that sounds exactly like a formula, and I'm no good at math, but I'm I'm following all this. Going, yeah, you would have to have that really gridded out, and not just. I'm just going to see where this takes me. No, it takes you to this page and you better be ready for that splash on that page or forget it. Yeah, but the, the constraints can sometimes be inspiring. Just well, in the it, same it forces you to do it. I form poetry, like a sonnet can be inspiring. <laughs> Comics and sonnets, I like it. Well, I want to hear about the third book because you say these are coming on rapid succession. So I'm assuming you have a title and a release date for the number three in this cycle. The next book is called The Cup uh, not the comet cycle. It is part of the comet cycle. It's yes. called Sky Vault. And Sky Vault? Sky Vault. And I've traveled to Alaska several times. Um, and when there, one of the things that I encountered was the uh, number of, of astroscience and atmospheric science labs that are there. Um, and they look very much like something out of Stranger Things. And it's about that. It takes place in Fairbanks, and you come to understand where the comet came from, which is not from the Oort cloud, which is the common source of most comets that we see. Uh, but it, I said before that it introduces new elements to the world, which is impossible if you consider that the periodic table is limited for a reason, that everything yeah. in the universe comes from the Big Bang. So where does the comet come from? Uh, the book introduces the concept of mirror matter, dark matter, and the possibility of interdimensionality. Being at work. Nice. Well, I knew it had to have an M. And when you said Alaska, I was going to say, is it going to be moose? Because you've got metal mushrooms. So the third could be moose. But okay, mirror matter or, or different types of matter makes more Inter sense. Interdimensional moose. Moose. I'd read that, honestly. I, I read weird stuff like that. So I, you, you've already sold me. After the first book, you sold me. You could write pretty much whatever you want to do with the comment. I'm I'm on board, but I just was like, what, where are we going? Do they always have M's or is that just a pattern that I should not have picked up on after two books? <laughs> I can't help it. I didn't I didn't realize the pattern. <laughs> it's, it's M's. Now that so. I'm on to it, I have to make the third novel. I'm retitling it. I'm tossing out all those pages. It's mm -hmm. now going to be called Space Moose. Space Moose. <laughs> I would totally, but you have to make sure it's spelled correctly because I really like, well, I like food. So if it was spelled M O U S S E, people <laughs> would think it's a whipped dessert. I'd be down for that too. Like if we're just talking about food. That'll be the epilogue. Well, there's, you, you have a lot of food in your books. You've got a steakhouse that plays a, as a scene. Like, Ooh, we're having soap. We're having pie. Well, I like pie. I, I had some supernatural flashbacks, Dean requesting pie. So. Nice. We had less pie in the second book, but that's that's okay. There were plenty of mushrooms that people were not trying to eat. But, <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of a foodie, so uh, it its way into my fiction. Same, and I appreciate that. That even in a book this precise, you still had room for my food. I'm good with that. Benjamin, thank you so much for being here today. We're we are over our time, and I will get I will get so many so many problems if I go any longer and take you any longer. But I could talk to you easily for an hour and be like, tell me more about this space moose coming. Uh, or the mirror matter because i think that's probably where the book's really going but i would read mirror matter too and probably there's a multiverse of space moose i'm 
I'm not sure. I'd read that. I'll make it, that'll be a short story or an epilogue. Just for and do you, do you have a release date? Because you said it's every six months. So if I'm doing math, is it coming out July? Well, that would be ideal. But <laughs> like, hmm, I'd like July. July would be good. I've been I've been juggling a lot of different projects. Uh, it's a little bit late, but it'll be in the coming year. Because in the meantime, we can go find you writing other Marvel and DC comics, perhaps? Yeah, writing. I've got a big Wolverine event that releases next week. It's called The Ten Lives of Wolverine and the X-Deaths of Wolverine. It's ten issues weekly. Check it out. I also have a movie coming out at Sundance. Uh, that I co-wrote with the director, James Ponsel. What's that one called? It's called Summerine, like summer with an I-N-G at the end. Ooh, Summerine. Very nice. So if it's at Sundance, do you think we'll be able to find it on platforms or in big theaters sometime this year? Or I don't know how much you We just got the crappy news that Sundance is going virtual, which is understandable given what's happening in the world, but still stinks. Still stinks Uh, because you were going to go to Sundance. So the red carpet premiere premiere is in my basement. Um, And... (laughs) And anyways, because wear a bow tie it's online, you can watch, you can get a ticket to it and watch it virtually. Very uh, nice. But we're going to be hitting other film festivals in the spring, and there'll be a wide, you know, release, premiere. We don't know the exact date, but it'll be this summer. Very well, summer. You have to release summering in the summer, because if you release it in January, people will be really confused. Yeah. It's but, 2022. No one knows what's happening anymore. We still think it's 2020 that's just gone on forever. It's 2022. When is it? Where am I? Who am I? Today it's Tuesday. That's how I know because that's when To the Moon Allison airs is on Tuesdays. So with that, I will say thank you so much for joining us today. And I'll say we'll see you again February 8th when I have Chandra Bloomberg here doing Digging Up Love, which the love tells us it's going to be romance, but I think there might be dinosaurs involved. So there's a dinosaur in the cover. I'm sold on that. So thank you everyone for watching, either live or on the replay. Thank you to Roman Sirotin, my producer, and Pam Stack, our executive producer. This has been a copywritten podcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you and see you next time. Bye.